Hello, and welcome to the next episode of the Participation and Performance Podcast, hosted by me, Dr. Dan Brown. In this episode, I am joined by Dr. David Fletcher from Loughborough University in the United Kingdom. David is a senior lecturer in sport and performance psychology and a world-leading researcher in stress, resilience and performance management. David also works as a sport psychology practitioner and works closely with organisations on creating environments and cultures that enable high performance. In this episode, David and I discuss stress and coping research with a particular focus on transactional stress theory. Throughout the interview, David draws on his own personal experiences as an elite swimmer and then as a practitioner. David began by telling me how he became interested in sport and performance psychology. Well, for me, it all began actually when I was probably about 10 or 11 years old. I was a competitive swimmer and uh, I can remember being quite nervous before the local club championship swimming race. So that was when I started to realise that sort of psychology, I don't know if I knew the word then, but certainly I, I realised that the mental aspects of sport were, were relevant. And I, I can actually remember my first sort of recollection of sports psychology was sitting in a restaurant waiting for a meal with my parents and reading through it was a guy called Keith Bell who'd written a few uh, sports psychology books for swimming specifically targeted at kids and I remember being fascinated by these books and then sort of fast forward a few years and I'd done my A-level PE and uh, applied to university and I went to uh, the University of Wales Institute Cardiff which is now Cardiff Met University and studied uh, sports science there and one of my lecturers was Sheldon Hanton and he just finished his PhD and, and worked in uh, elite level swimming so the work that he taught me captivated me at that stage of my career and um, I'm from there as an undergraduate student just became fascinated in, in psychology and went on to get my PhD in the area. Okay and why was it that you ended up focusing on stress and emotion uh, as an area of, of research and speciality? I think there are a couple of reasons why stress and emotion particularly grasped me as a student the first as I mentioned was as a swimmer right from the age of 10 through to uh, when I retired it was a feature of competitive swimming and as I became better it wasn't just the nerves that I experienced before the race it was the stress of balancing high level swimming with academic study Uh, I took a year out in between my A levels and um, going to university to train specifically for the Olympic trials but I wasn't quite at at the top end. I wasn't on any funding or anything. So the financial aspect, um, the fatigue, the the worries and concerns about what to do at university, all those things were going on in my life as well. So yeah, from a personal point of view, stress was relevant. And then as I say, when I went to university, Sheldon Hampton was uh, teaching competitive anxiety. And so academically, I got into the literature at that point so I guess it was the, the two reasons the personal experiences but also having that mentor as an undergraduate who who had a real expertise and knowledge in the area. Okay so we've spoken a bit about the experiences of stress and I guess we've kind of spoken about it in a, in a colloquial sense in terms of feeling under stressed or feeling stressed or and things like that but in terms of an academic and in a research perspective what is stress and what's the difference between when we talk about stress as a stimulus, stress as a response, or even stress as a transaction? Yeah, it's a, it's a good question that. And before I answer that, what I'm going to do is actually just mention something else that I think is quite relevant in my development. My father was um, a scientist who worked for the government 
and so he had a very sort of scientific approach to, to most things, but certainly to helping my swimming. And I, so I, I, I guess you could say I d developed a healthy respect for science as I was growing up and a scientific outlook. So as I went to university and studied sports science and then focused on psychology and stress in particular, that's when I got my head in the books and started thinking, well, I know what stress is to feel it. I know what it feels like to be stood on the block, have thousands of people watching you and, and have a lot riding on a race. But what does it mean to take a sort of analytical approach to, to this concept, if you like? And I think that's quite important if you're going to grasp any concept in psychology is that you have that sort of starting point and that appreciation for, for science and that outlook. So that's when I became fascinated in breaking down the concept of stress because it is quite a, a, a nebulous, almost vague term that we all know what it means to experience, but it's much harder to define it. And so you mentioned about a stress, uh, sorry, a stressor or a response um, and the differences between these concepts. And as I read more and more, I realized that researchers use the concept of stress in slightly different ways. So you mentioned stimulus. That's very much where you're focused on what's causing me pressure, if you like. Um, or the, you know, the colloquial phrase would be, um, I feel under a lot of stress right now. So it's all those things that are impinging upon you. Uh, you know, typically things like workload, um, submitting assignments on time, uh, training pressures, those types of things where you can sometimes feel overwhelmed. So that's very much stress from a stimulus point of view. But if you look at a response type definition of stress, that's a bit more colloquially speaking, that's about feeling stressed out, you know, where we use that phrase, I feel really stressed and frazzled at the moment. So you might have feelings of anxiety or doubts or nerves. So rather than it being more the external things that are impinging upon you, it's how you feel internally. Uh, so it's all those emotions you feel. It might be some behavioral responses. So um, people might smoke, they might drink more caffeine, alcohol, those types of things as well. So that's the difference between the stimulus and the response. And interestingly, in the, the 80s and 90s, a lot of the research didn't really distinguish between the two. They kind of clumped it all together under this nebulous term of stress. But for me, that's a bit unacceptable because you need to start breaking the concept down in order to start making sense of it. Because one individual might have a lot of stresses or stimuluses um, and another individual might have similar, but they don't necessarily respond in the same way. So if you're going to try and figure out how athletes uh, begin to thrive on that pressure and use it in a positive way, then you need to break it down into what I would, you know, the li literature talks about the components of the stress process. And that's why I think that's important. Okay, so if we're to move away from stimulus and response, the common understanding of stress now is that it's this transaction. Can you kind of explain what that means? What, what is stress as a transaction? Yeah, I can actually. And it, what's interesting about this is I think quite a few students, and I was one of them, get a little bit lost at this point. You know, they'll come into the concept and they'll be interested in it because of their own personal experiences and they'll be able to relate to it. And then you start reading some of this literature and it gets quite heavy going. You mentioned transaction. The literature also talks about interaction. It talks about relational meaning. And your eyes can just glaze over as you read all these concepts. But, but it is important to stick with it. And often I say to, to students, it's a bit like trying to learn a new language like French or German. When it clicks, you'll be able to understand it. 
So you need to spend that bit of time trying to get to grips with this. But the, the phrase transaction shifts the emphasis away from just the environment or the individual, which is what stimulus and response is respectively focused on. And the transaction, well, when you say the word transaction, the first thing that springs to mind for me is like a business transaction between two people. And um, there's a kind of relationship and a bargaining that's going on there. And, and when we talk about a stress transaction, it's a bit like an individual athlete who's constantly having this bargaining going on with their environment around them, their coaches, their parents, their opponents, their tr training environment, the equipment, all these types of things are are constantly uh, changing and evolving around them. And there's almost this bargaining going on between the individual and their environment. And it's it's not really a bargaining as such. What, what we talk about in psychology is appraisal, uh, an evaluation of that environment. So constantly the individual is weighing up the pros and the cons of all these things that are coming in. So that's where the word transaction comes from, is there's this constant transaction between the athlete and everything that's going on around them and as as I say it's it, it constantly evolves and changes day to day so that that's what transaction means and why there's been that shift so the shift towards stresses and transaction has brought about it uh, the transactional model of stress so Lazarus and Lazarus and Folkman's work has uh, developed this model and then subsequently you developed your meta model of uh, stress emotions and performance can you talk a little bit about how a lot of these uh, experiences that you've been talking about there have been put in this uh, format or as this model and, and into your meta model? Yes, okay. So Lazarus's work, for example, builds upon this notion of transaction and that definition of, of what stress is. And what they're basically doing is putting the flesh on the bones of trying to understand what's going on. So as we shift the focus on to the interpretation or the appraisal of the environment, that's essentially what Lazarus's uh, transactional model does, is it, it focuses on aspects of the environment, but most um, key and crucially is an individual's appraisal. And they talk about primary and secondary appraisal. So primary appraisal is basically um, about, do I care about this situation? Is it relevant to me? Is it relevant to my goals? And if internally you say, yes, this is something that's important to me, I care about this, uh, then you go into secondary appraisal, which is, well, can I cope with this demand then? Uh, so in a sporting situation, you might find yourself in a competition or a race. Is it something that's important to me? If the answer is yes, do I have the, the coping abilities or the literature talks about resources that can match that? So if it's a fairly low-level race, for example, you might be thinking, yeah, my capabilities mean I've got really good chance of winning this this race and you might be positive and excited before you get in but as I mentioned earlier if you, the, the real sort of cutting edge of your abilities this is where the anxiety and the nerves come in no matter what level you're at um, so that's that's what Lazarus's theory is really all about is that primary and secondary appraisal and then there's emotions as well which uh, arise as a consequence of those appraisal mechanisms and, and later on in Lazarus's career he talks a lot more about those emotions being the outcome of appraisal. And the other concept that he talks about is relational meaning. And I said earlier, you know, it's really important not to get thrown by some of these um, phrases. But this is an important one because he talks about the relationship between the individual and their environment and the meaning that the individual um, ascribes to that uh, relationship. So it's, it's basically a very similar concept to appraisal, but it's slightly differently worded. 
Uh, but that's absolutely crucial. And we see that in sport all the time. Uh, different individuals will evaluate or appraise similar stresses in different ways and, and the reason for that is, is because of their coping abilities and their resources that they have access to. So as an undergraduate student I was learning about this and then I moved into my PhD uh, but I was also interested in various other models of stress and there are a lot of them out there. So I began to read around them and another one that was uh, particularly relevant for me was the work of uh, Graham Jones in the 90s looking at anxiety responses and of course anxiety is a key emotion in, in a sporting context and Lazarus's model really finishes up around the experience of the emotion he doesn't write that much around he, he talks a little bit about how that emotion is linked to well-being and performance but it almost dries up a little bit some of his writings uh, that he's more preoccupied by that front end of the appraisal and the emotion but Graham Jones's work in the 90s, and there are other researchers as well, but this was the body of work I was most familiar with, actually talks more about the back end of when you experience anxiety. Actually, people can interpret anxiety in different ways. So some people, although anxiety is a negative emotion, that's the definition, a negative emotional response to a stressor, people can take that negative emotion and use it in different ways. So whilst you wouldn't want to be walking around experiencing anxiety all the time, there are certain situations when anxiety can be viewed in a positive way. So sporting uh, competition might be one of those times. And the reason for that is because anxiety um, can be interpreted as I'm ready to go, I'm psyched up, I'm pumped up, I care about this. If I care about this, I'm going to really focus all my attention on it. I'm going to use that anxiety to drive me through the pain. There are positive ways of interpreting that negative emotion. Of course, there are negative ways as well. Oh my gosh, I'm feeling nervous. My parents are watching me. What happens if I get this wrong? Or my funding is uh, dependent on this. I, you end up in a panic-stricken state. But for me, Lazarus's theory didn't really capture that side of performance psychology, if you like. So those were two key theories that I read around. I thought, really, I need to put these two together in one big model, if you like. And that's where the word meta comes in. And again, I said earlier about how a lot of psychology is just learning a new language. Well, that's all the word meta means, is that it sits above uh, a variety of other um, theories or concepts. And that's what I tried to do, was stitch together some of these different theories. And there were other ones as well. I was reading a lot around organisational psychology, so there was the uh, job demand control model as well, which I, I worked into my meta model. So that was the thinking and the evolution behind my meta model. It was I wanted to try and take a bird's eye perspective of all this work that was going on and try and sort of stitch it together to make sense of uh, stress and sport. Okay, so we've spoken about stress. We've spoken about stresses and the, the uh, environmental stimuli that create these uh, emotional responses, anxiety. You've spoken about appraisal. Where does coping come into this model? Yeah, that's a good, good question, actually. Um, coping comes in in a variety of ways. I mentioned coping briefly under appraisal, and it comes in under secondary appraisal, where you appraise your own capabilities and your own cope, coping capabilities specifically. So you ask yourself the question, and it's not really at a conscious level, mostly it's at an unconscious, instantaneous level, of 
do I have the capability to cope with this? And as I said earlier, if, if you appraise that in a more negative way, that's when you get the negative emotions kick in. But then you have the emotional response, and then, as I said earlier about Graham Jones's work, you interpret that emotional response as to how it might affect your performance. And then depending on the outcome at that stage, then you actually initiate coping me uh, mechanisms and coping strategies. And so coping really is only needed if things are starting to go wrong or you're doubting whether you can cope with the situation. If, if you have a very positive response to stress, in theory, there's no need to then cope with, there's nothing to cope with. Uh, but coping kicks in towards the latter stages of that cycle uh, where you actually have to do something in order to deal with the situation or deal with the fallout of the situation, i.e. your emotions, i.e. interpersonal relationships, burnout, all these types of outcomes that you can have from stress. So, yeah, coping's a little bit more downstream and we talk about emotion-based coping, problem-based coping, and there's all sorts of different categorizations of different types of coping strategies. Another way of looking at coping is how effective it is in terms of what you want it to do. Is it effective in alleviating stress? Um, and then also, I, one thing that fascinates me with coping is a coping strategy can be quite good in the short term in terms of alleviating stress, but slightly more dysfunctional in the long term in terms of your well-being or your performance. So that's where it gets quite intricate and quite interesting as well, particularly in high achievers, how they cope uh, with stress and pressure. So we've spoken through um, the model and we've spoken through the various sort of theoretical uh, arguments behind uh, the transactional uh, model of stress. Um, what's the sport-based research like? Is there much evidence to support the model uh, within sport? Are there particular areas of the model that still require additional uh, support within sport? Yeah, that's a good question. Uh, there has been quite a lot of research in the area over the last 10-15 um, years. Um, some of my PhD students, uh, Rachel Arnold, Faye Didymus, um, James Rumbold, they've all conducted research, particularly in the area of organisational stress, that have shone light on different stages of the model. Um, but as I say, it's a meta-model of, of a lot of other people's research as well. So it's there's plenty of other research that might not necessarily cite the model, which would support it. So, for example, there's the challenge threat uh, literature that's out there as well, which is, again, sort of stems from similar research, uh, Lazarus and others. And so that would lend support to it. So I think um, there is a lot of support for Lazarus's work, both in the sport literature and also outside of it, and also for the meta model more broadly. Um, yes, I don't, I don't think too many people would dispute the importance of appraisal and coping you know there are dozens and dozens of uh, papers out there uh, alongside possibly an area like motivation self-determination theory uh, they're probably two of the biggest areas of of research that are out there in terms of the support that's available okay so if there's evidence to support the model where do you see the field going next are there particular areas of the model or stress research in general that you feel uh, researchers are going to look to move towards in the next few years yeah, I think we've seen a bit of a shift in a few interesting directions. One of them, which is really pleasing to see, is 
that researchers aren't just focusing on singular components of the model. And what I mean by that is, back in the early days, you might conduct a study to look at what are the causes of stress or what are the res emotional responses. So they kind of zoom in on these different aspects of the stress process. Whereas researchers now are starting to look at relationships between those different components. So how are the emotions linked to different types of stressors or how are their coping strategies linked uh, to different experiences of stress? And so researchers are becoming a bit more innovative in terms of uh, their methodologies. So from a quantitative perspective, you're looking at more sophisticated multivariate statistics. From a qualitative perspective, you might be um, moving beyond um, interviews to just identify different stresses uh, to using um, more creative approaches to, to capturing this, this stress experience. So that's one development that uh, has begun to, to evolve over recent years, and I see that continuing as we go into the future. The other aspect is longitudinal research. Uh, stress, by definition, is, is an ongoing, evolving process that unfolds and changes over time, and therefore uh, researchers really need to try and use longitudinal methodologies that capture that. So again, it's going back to using slightly innovative and different methods that capture uh, that longitudinal process. I think as well we've got to remember that, that stress fundamentally is not just a psychological concept, it's a, a biopsychosocial concept. So I think researchers are now embracing more interdisciplinary research where you're cap capturing physiological indices um, and the social dynamics surrounding the individual more. So, as I say, I think over recent years, uh, researchers are beginning to do that, and I, I see that continuing over the next five to ten years. So we've spoken a lot about the research, and I was just wondering how, if at all, um, your work as a practitioner has been shaped by uh, the work that you do and the research that you've done on, on stress. Yeah, absolutely it has. In, in fact, I'll go back to another personal story just to sort of kick this, this response off. Um, I kind of retired from serious swimming after the Olympic trials in 96, but I kept it going for another four years at a high level while, whilst I was studying. And as I mentioned, I was an undergraduate student in Cardiff learning about all of the, the, the psychology. And I was like, oh, I wish I'd known this as I was uh, growing up as a swimmer. And as I say, I was still sort of swimming at a pretty high level. And I went to the World Cup in 98 and I dropped my training right back. I was only training three or four times a week. I dropped my events down to the sprint events, changed my training, doing more land-based uh, work, more strength and power. But I worked a lot more on the mental side because I, I knew how to do it. Um, I had Sheldon as a lecturer and spent more time studying it and just matured as an individual. And part of that process was understanding the stress process. I, did, I, I really, before that point, as, as a young swimmer, frankly didn't have a clue, uh, didn't understand it. But because I had that greater understanding, I could look at, well, what is causing me pressure? Where's it coming from? How do I interpret that? I talked about appraisal earlier on. How do I then switch and change my interpretation and uh, also use some of these coping strategies that we talked about? And I remember going to the World Cup in 98 off much less training against some of the best, best swimmers in the world and swimming the fastest times of my career. And as I said, for the two years prior to that, uh, swimming wasn't the huge part of my life that it had been before. Uh, so that, for me, 
at a very personal level was a big factor. And also alongside that, I was much better at performing in exams. I didn't do great in my A-levels, but I was getting sort of first-class marks as an undergraduate student. So handling stress and pressure in coursework and examinations, I became much better at. And that was a direct consequence of of this knowledge I gained. So then fast forward a few more years as as a sports psychologist and working with people, I then use a lot of that in uh, uh, working with athletes and, and being what we call an evidence-based practitioner. I, I use this understanding of the concept to um, break it down and ask people, you know, what's causing you stress? What are these factors? How do you view it? How do you juggle these demands? What emotions do you feel? How can we begin to tackle these emotions? What coping strategies can we put in place? So, yeah, it definitely uh, helped me as a practitioner for sure. Fantastic. Um, I just want to ask one final question before we wrap up um, this, this interview. If you were to offer students one piece of advice in terms of how to get into sport and exercise psychology or sport and performance psychology, what would that be? I think um, hopefully it's something that's come through all my responses to most of these questions. Is The big thing is you've got to have a real passion for the discipline And what I mean by that is you've got to have a passion for sport and you've got to have a passion for psychology. You've got to have a passion for learning and you've got to have a passion for helping people. If you're a bit deficient in one or two of those areas, then being a sports psychology practitioner might not be be right for you. In fact, it probably won't be right for you because it is a competitive industry and most of the, the good people that are out there tick a lot of those boxes that I've just mentioned so I think that's the fundamental starting point is having a passion for sport for psychology for learning for helping people and there are other things as well alongside that you've you've got to have good time management skills um, you've got to be able to work well with others um, you've got to be able to network you've got to be persistent you've got to be able to role model and demonstrate some of these things we talk about resilience coping under pressure uh, so there's there's a whole array of things, but it fundamentally starts with that passion and finding that passion. And as I say, as an undergraduate student, I was quite lucky because I'd retired from swimming and then I was kind of looking around as to what I was going to do. And then I found sports psychology. And I thought this is this is my passion. So that would be my advice for undergraduate students is find that passion. And if sports psychology is that passion... Um, then yeah uh, just sort of bury your head in the books uh, learn a lot about the the area but also find great mentors find good lecturers try and grab a coffee with these guys and 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 girls that are out there as well and and learn from them and and take it from there just finally um, and picking up on your story I guess you spoke quite a lot about the role of swimming and your own personal sporting experience in your journey with research but then also there about your journey as a practitioner um, and about finding that passion for sport do you think it's important that uh, sport and exercise uh, psychologists or those who want to become sport and exercise psychologists also compete and play sport themselves or or is that not necessary as such? That, that's a really good question, actually. Uh, not necessarily compete themselves. I think it would be a bit odd if you didn't have some interest and, in, as I say, actual passion for sport. But actually, passion for sport can come through coaching, volunteering, officiating, spectating, being a fan. As For me, it was 
actively being a competitive swimmer that's what really lit me up although I did do quite a little bit of coaching alongside it so yeah the passion for sport can come through in different ways for people but I think there probably needs to be some mechanism there I mean for me what's been interesting reflecting on my career is I still retain a passion for sport and I'm I, I still swim and keep fit and and what have you but it's probably not the same as it was 10-15 years ago and actually my career has now evolved into working with other high performers in different domains like business, the armed services. And I don't have a business background. I've never operated in, in the armed forces. But I, do, I am developing a passion and an interest for those contexts, and particularly for high performance. That's the thing that I'm really fascinated by. Um, so yeah some of that advice that I gave applies not just to people starting out their career but also for people sort of reinventing themselves mid-career as well. That's great thank you so much Dave for joining us today Um, and uh, thank you very much for sharing your insights on uh, the role of stress in sport and also your experiences of being a practitioner thanks very much. Thank you. Thank you for joining us today. I hope that you join me again next time for the next episode of the Participation and Performance Podcast. This episode was created, presented and produced by Dr. Dan Brown with production assistance from Tom Langston. The music used in this episode is Unity by Kevin McLeod. All copyright information can be found in the show notes.